It's the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder, pastor of North Shore Vineyard. Today on the podcast, we have part seven in our series, Fellowship on the King. Today's message is entitled, The Cross and the Sword. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 22 for a contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world world when it comes to power. This message is also tied into Holy Week as the text that we're looking at occurs the night before Jesus goes to the cross. Speaking of Holy Week, we do have some devotionals for this final week of Lent, some reflections on Jesus and the gospel. We encourage you to check those out at northshorevineyard.org sometime this week. Also, one other announcement, our small groups will not be meeting this week because of spring break. So, that's all we got. Let's head over to downtown Covington, North Shore Vineyard Church. Thanks for listening. Ezra, for years, has had a, a, a fear of tornadoes. And this probably relates back to, to living in Kenner during Katrina. And when we came back, there was, there was actually some tornadoes that had taken the, the roof off an apartment complex next to us. And so he's always had, like, he's not, I mean, scared of hurricanes, but he's more scared of tornadoes. And it's, it's embodied his, his deepest fear for years. And so, like, I mean, he's always fascinated about, like, weather channel and stuff. He's like, is there tornadoes coming? And I'm thinking, I grew up in West Texas where that was a... a constant threat, but, you know, we have tornadoes here, but they're not quite the same as the tornadoes we get out there, typically. Uh, But uh, uh, about a month ago, we had a horrible storm come through Abita Springs, and we had this gazebo on our back porch, and I'm trying to cook some nachos in the kitchen, and Ezra's starting to get worried because it's raining real hard, and then it's starting to rain sideways, and he's like, Dad, that looks bad out there. I'm like, oh, you know, it's all right. And uh, he's looking out the window. All of a sudden, I hear him scream. He's like, Dad, a tornado. And um, I don't think it was actually a tornado. But the wind picked up our gazebo and uh, slammed it up against the top of the house. And then it landed on, on you know, it kind of hit the side of our house and then landed uh, on the other roof. And, and, and the whole time, Ezra is like, he's the one who sees it all happen, like live action. And so my first instinct was, God, <laughs> like, like the one kid who's deathly afraid of tornadoes, you know, the one person in this family who, who hates that, and you show up, you know, I mean, the, 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 there's this tornado outside, and, uh, or whatever, in his eyes. And, uh, but, but a couple of hours later, he, he was like, you know, God really protected us, Dad. I, I really saw God answer my prayer. And, and I didn't realize what was going on in his little eight-year-old mind at the time, but the next day, Dina was uh, going out of town, and so Ezra got to sleep in my bed, and we're sitting there. I'm reading some book, and Ezra's going through Dina's books, and Dina keeps all these really heavy, deep books on dealing with, you know, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> not not the kind of stuff I like to read when I'm going to bed. Uh, so Ezra's trying to find something to read on her book you know, her little book stand, and he finds, like, I'm going to read the Bible, Dad. So he, he turns to the book of Ezra. That's what he's really into that. So he starts reading it, and 
after about 10 minutes of reading it, he goes, Dad, reading the Bible with God's a lot better. I'm like, what? And, and he started explaining to me because not only has he had a fear of tornadoes for years, he's also struggled with doubts on believing in God. And he's told me about his doubts with God. You know, he's like, God, I, he's like, Dad, I keep asking God to speak to me, and I've never heard God's voice, and I don't know what this looks like or that looks like. And, and sometimes I feel like I'm a lousy parent as a pastor because I'm like, well, you know, sometimes I struggle with doubts too, and probably not the thing you need to tell an eight-year-old. But, um, but I was like, well, keep praying that God will show himself to you. And so long story short, that was God showing himself to Ezra. And and he is totally, I mean, like he shows up at church the next day and he's like telling every kid and back there, like God showed up, he rescued us for him. And, and, and that's what I got to see that, that, uh, that God revealed himself to Ezra in the midst of his fears, in the midst of the one thing he was most afraid of. God shows up and, and, and shows him that, you know, I got you. And, and, and to this day, anytime there's a storm now, Ezra prays, and he talks to God, and he, it, it's, it's just really cool. And uh, I don't know why it, was, it wasn't part of my message this morning, but I was kind of thinking, church is a lot better with God too, right? <laughs> but I, I, loved, I loved that quote from Ezra, reading the Bible's a lot better with God. <laughs> I was like, Ezra, a lot of adults need to figure that one out. Reading the Bible's a lot better with God. Going to church, a lot better with God. Worship. A lot better when God is here. <laughs> Wise words. Well, definitely feel God here this morning. And uh, today is in, in the church calendar is Palm Sunday. And if you if you're not familiar with what Palm Sunday is, it, that's the the day on the church calendar that commemorates the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. On Sunday, Jesus goes into Jerusalem riding on the back of, of a donkey, and he, he comes in as any great king would come into the city. And the people of Jerusalem welcome him as a king, as the Messiah. They begin laying palm branches and throwing their, their coats down before him to, to, to clear the path for, for Jesus as he's coming through. And this, is, this was something that you would only do for great dignitaries, the Caesar, uh, the, the people in power. And they were beginning to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. The king is here. The Messiah. But we know in our day that political opinion is kind of a, a fickle thing, right? Well, it, it, it's not a new phenomenon. Because the same crowd that, that welcomed Jesus as king on Sunday, by Friday, many of them were sh- shouting out, Crucify him. So we're, we're on the beginning of a week that, that where the ministry of Jesus comes into focus like no other time in his ministry. We see all the things that he'd been preaching and all the healings, all the miracles that was leading up to this week. And today I want to look at a, a passage um, from Luke 22. We've been in this series talking about, called Fellowship of the King. And we've been talking about how the kingdom of God... The mentality, the way we live is completely different than the, the way the world lives. It's completely different. And a lot of people want to just make it about morality, but it's, it's, it's a much bigger thing than morality. We're living as, as if God is our ruler and our king. That means we're people of forgiveness. 
That means that, that, that we take the low road. We've talked about various things. And, and today we're going to look at the very cross of Christ and, and the implications leading up to that on what it means to be kingdom people. Luke 22. Now, this, this takes place on the Thursday night of Holy Week. Now, Holy Week for Christians was, was Passover week for the Jews. Jesus chose to come to Jerusalem at the most... Uh, crowded time. It'd be like showing up at at New Orleans during Mardi Gras. (laughs) Jesus picked Passover to come there. And that that says a lot about what Jesus's ministry was. He, he, as we said in the book of John, he's the Passover lamb that takes away the sins, not just of, of Israel, but of the whole world. So this is Passover week and Jesus wants to celebrate Passover with his disciples. So this would be Thursday night, the, the night before the crucifixion. Luke chapter 22. And if anybody needs a Bible, we have some around. Okay, you can just listen to my wonderful voice if you want. Um, Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly, eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said... Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with me on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been declared, but woe to that man who betrays him. They, the disciples, began to question among themselves which of them it might would be who would do this. A dispute arose also among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Now, this is an interesting thing. If if you've been in church a while, you've probably celebrated communion or the Eucharist, Lord's Supper, whatever you call it. And and it is a bit of a strange thing, but it's 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 filled with meaning. It's it's one of the the, the two main sacraments that all churches celebrate, uh, that being baptism and, and communion. We, I love taking communion. We'd take communion around here more if I could stay on top of getting the supplies and, <laughs> and putting it out more often. Uh, but I, I, I think communion, it, it's one of the high points of, of gathering as a church. But think of how weird it must have been to celebrate communion before the cross. I mean, these guys had not celebrated communion. This was the first communion. Uh, you hear, I hear talk in the Catholic Church of you know, having your first communion. Well, this is the first communion. Jesus was, was offering the cup and saying, this is, this is the blood of a new covenant. Drink my blood, so to speak. And this is the bread that my body broken for you. Imagine how strange that must have been. <laughs> Just hanging around the dinner table celebrating Passover. And then Jesus starts saying some things like that. I suspect, from what I see of the disciples and other passages in the Bible, they didn't quite get what he was talking about. Because even at this point, the disciples don't really realize he's really going to the cross. Even though Jesus has told them on numerous occasions, i got to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And they're probably thinking, oh, he's speaking in parables again. and uh, that, that diet. They're probably, I suspect, as most people that greeted him on Palm Sunday, they're expecting a Messiah who's going to come in like Rambo and kick butt and drive away the Romans and restore Israel. 
And Jesus starts talking all this stuff about body being broken, blood being poured out. This was a very somber occasion. Understand, Jesus, he's been talking about having to die for a long time. He knows that going to Jerusalem is going to mean his death. Actually, just a few hours of this, we're gonna, after this, we're going to see that he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and prays. And, and it says that his sweat becomes like drops of blood. And that's an that's a actual physical condition that can happen. But it, it, it only happens when you're under the greatest of distress and duress that, that the capillaries in your skin will begin to burst and mix with your sweat and it'll drip down, bleeding through your pores. That's how serious this is to Jesus. He feels the weight of this thing approaching. And the disciples, <laughs> what do they start doing? They don't get it because why? They start arguing about who's the greatest. Can you imagine? Like you've got a friend who's going to die the next day and you just start arguing. You know, I could just see it. Peter, Peter's going, <laughs> guys, look, how many of you guys walked on water? I did. I can see Thomas saying, well, you were only on the water for a few seconds before, you know, you fell in. And, and, and then John pipes up over here. Well, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And so I'm going to be his right hand man. And they start arguing about this. That's the kingdom of the world mentality. And Jesus takes this moment as kind of a teaching opportunity to show them that even though that's the way that comes natural to us, it's, it's me first and I'm the best and I'm the greatest, he, he's going to clear things up for them. If you're going to be kingdom people, that's not the way of my kingdom. Verse 25, he says this, Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. <laughs> Jesus is doing a little something here. Let, let, let's clear things up here really quick. Who's the greatest? I am. <laughs> I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. I've come here. But what have I been doing? Can you pay attention to what I've been doing since you came here tonight at Passover? If you, if, actually, if you look at John chapter 13, I won't read it, but there's this, we find out from John's angle, the way John uh, writes this event, that, that earlier on when they got there, Jesus washes all their feet. Now, washing feet, that kind of sounds like a strange thing to us nowadays. Uh, but back at that time, Everybody wore sandals. It was dirt roads. That was kind of a customary thing. You'd come to somebody's house. The servants would come over and wash your feet. That was not the job that, that the people who owned the house, you know, the host would do. They would get their servants to do. It was a menial. It was a, a really a job. No, I mean, I can imagine. I'm not a big person on washing feet. You know, I'm, I'm not a big feet person. <laughs> and we find out in John 13 that Jesus washes their feet. And then when he gets done with it, he says, you guys ought to do this for each other. Jesus, in, in, in Luke here, he says, who's the greatest, the one sitting at the table or the one who serves? But what have I done since you got here tonight? <laughs> I've served you. 
I've washed your feet. I've, I've brought you to the table. I've served you food. I've waited on you. The greatest in my kingdom is the one who serves. Jesus takes everything that they understand about power and prestige in the world and he turns it on its head. That's the way the world works. The way of the world is, you know, this is my title. I've got, you know, I'm the, the CEO. I've got letters behind my name, Ph.D. or M.D. I've got a parking place at the church that says pastor. I, I wear a, you know, I, and it, it's up at the front. <laughs> uh, I've got all these things because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in charge. I, I use, I throw my power around. I throw my weight around. When I walk into a room, people move. When I speak, they, they jump. That's the way of the world. That's the way we aspire to be in the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus says, uh-uh, that's... That's what we call power over. I mean, you can look at any, any government on planet Earth right now from China to America to Saudi Arabia. Every government, even though they might fall at, at certain ends of, of totalitarianism, you know, with very oppressive governments on one side and, and, and more liberal governments on the other side. Every government on planet Earth is about power over. We keep you from doing stuff by applying pressure from the outside. It may be rules. It may be laws. It may be torturing. It may be uh, exile, whatever. They all have their own little ways. But even in America, there are certain things that, that America keeps you from doing by imposing laws and taxes and all kinds of things like that. It's power over. And Jesus says, no, that's the way the world works. My kingdom, it's power under. It's transformation that comes from serving, from humility, from love, from taking the low road. And it may look like weakness, but it's not. Actually, it takes more power (laughs) to move in that. There's a little word called meekness. Jesus used it in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Meekness, many times we think meek. Meek is a mouse or something. Like, oh, it's, it's just... We, we think it's weakness, but meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. That is true power indeed. Now, what's interesting, we, we have this, this whole thing that happens that night around the Passover meal and, and communion. But then we get to see what this looks like in reality. Just a few verses later. In verse 39, Jesus leaves the place where he's celebrating Passover. And uh, it says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. This is where Jesus would, would go to pray, the Garden of Gethsemane. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, this is the part, it says, An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus knows, I got to go to the cross. He knows that. He knows that's the whole reason why he came. But it ain't easy. It ain't easy. I remember years ago, I was in Indonesia and the family I was staying with said, hey, you want to try bungee jumping? I was like, you buying? And they're like, yeah. And so I was like, I went bungee jumping. And I remember getting up there, standing, knowing that these cords were, were 
going to save my life, but trying to tell myself to jump 18 stories down. And it's like telling yourself to commit suicide. It's, it's like, I, I know I'm going to be safe at the end of this thing, but physically you got to it, it just like your whole body saying, no, <laughs> don't jump off of buildings. Not good. It's not going to work out right. <laughs> Jesus knows that he's going to come out the other side of death, that God's going to resurrect him, but he's facing the, the very real human physical emotions of, of what it means to face death. He knows it's not going to be long. And, and certainly we see that that's very much the case. When, when he arose from his prayer, verse 45, and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. While Jesus was still speaking, a crowd came up to him, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered him, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come to him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have to come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Now, in, in all the Gospels, there's a, they all, even though they differ in, in, in how they portray this event, they all kind of shed light on this. In, in one of the accounts, Jesus, when, when Pete, we actually find out, by the way, that the guy uh, in Matthew, we find out the guy that picked up the sword and cut off the ear, it was Peter. <laughs> and, and, and Jesus says to Peter, don't you know, I could ask my father and he could send legions of angels right now to annihilate this place, wipe it off the map. <laughs> Peter, you don't need to protect God. <laughs> but I find that this scene is such an interesting picture of what Jesus has just told them. The kingdoms of this world, they're all about power over. They're all about force and violence and external motivation. Jesus says, put away your sword. He grabs that guy's ear, sticks it back on his head. <laughs> and he heads willingly to the sham trial, which will end up in his crucifixion. You know, the saddest points in the history of the church have come when Christians have ignored Jesus' message of the cross and have in, instead picked up the sword. You know, for the first three, three and a half centuries of the church, the church was really on the, on the fringes of everything. We can read, certainly in the New Testament, they were being persecuted. Every one of the disciples ended up being martyred. Uh, they, I mean, they, they all, uh, Paul died in Rome. Uh, we read in Philippians last year when we were studying through, through Philippians that Paul was in prison writing a letter to a church that was beginning to be persecuted. Nero just totally blamed the Christians for all kinds of things, crucified them, impaled him, impaled Christians on poles and burned them uh, to, to light his garden parties. Uh, horrible things were perpetrated against Christians for the first few centuries. But you know what? The Christian church just kept growing and growing and growing. And then something happened 
in the, in the early part of the 300s AD, Constantine, the, the emperor of Rome, he said he had a vision from God. I question whether it was a vision from God or a vision from uh, Satan. It, it was a, he saw a vision of a cross and he heard a voice say, go and conquer in my name. And Constantine made converted to Christianity. What, what is sad is that within a, by, by AD 313, uh, Christianity was legalized in the whole Roman Empire. And then within 70 years, it became the official state religion of Rome. And for the first time in history, we see Christianity move from uh, a fringe movement on the side to all of a sudden Christianity and Roman power mingled in what became known as Christendom. And the church has never, has never recovered from it since then. It really, truly is. I mean, a lot of people, and I, I try to imagine what it must be like because being a persecuted people for so long and then all of a sudden the emperor, you know, becomes a Christian and, and, and in one sense you're thinking, oh, this is the favor of God. Yes, God is, is, is changing things. We've got a Christian nation now and, and, and we're going to have prayer in the schools and, and everything we want. We're not going to be persecuted anymore. But you know, within just a few years of Christianity beginning to be legalized, we see the first examples of Christians killing people in the name of God. Taking up the sword, like Peter, we're going to help you, God. (laughs) Fighting on God's behalf. I mean, truly, many of the problems in the world right now, in the Mideast and all these things, they go back to a lot of the horrible things that Christians have done. In the name of God, the Crusades, millions of Jews and Muslims were killed by Christians who thought they were doing God a favor. Picking up the sword instead of replicating Calvary to the people around them. Instead of loving your enemies and blessing those that curse you, they forgot about that stuff and they, they just decided God's on our side. We need to go and conquer in His name. And it didn't stop with the Crusades. It continued with the Inquisitions. The Catholic Church, the the Inquisitions were horrible. Now it wasn't just Christians killing Muslims and Jews, although they got killed too. Now it was killing people that didn't agree with your particular doctrine. Accusing people. Executing them. And it wasn't just the Catholics. By the time the Protestant Reformation came along, there's, there's a group out there, you probably haven't heard of them that much, called the Anabaptists. And they were slaughtered by many of the Lutherans, Calvinists. A lot of the people that that led the Protestant Reformation started killing other Christians who had a different view on things. They were, and I think if if I look at Lutherans and Calvinists and Anabaptists today, and I think they don't really disagree on that much. One reason you don't hear of Anabaptists that much today is because they, they, they were almost wiped out. And it wasn't just the Catholics or the Protestant Reformation or the Crusaders. We see that Nazi Germany, last century. Do you realize that the majority of the Christians in Germany were okay with the Nazi thing. They bought into it. They bought into this idea that this is godly, that God is on our side, that God wants us to round up the Jewish people. They picked up the sword instead of living the cross. 
and I'm sure we could go around to, I'm sure there's events going on in the world today. And, and when we look at these things, when I look at Nazi Germany and six million Jews getting exterminated, I'm, I, can't, I think, how could anybody do that? But you know what? It's a lot easier than you think. We see Peter, who'd been with Jesus all those years, heard all Jesus saying, you know, bless your enemies, love those, you know, who curse you, take the low road, you know, serve one another. And who's the first person out there with a sword? Peter. (laughs) He'd experienced God. He'd walked on water. He was there for the transfiguration. He was there for the Sermon on the Mount. And yet none of that had changed his mentality. He was still thinking like the kingdoms of this world. You know, there's a a book I want to, that that I got uh, this last year, a great book by Eugene Peterson, the guy who wrote the Message Bible, but he was a pastor for 25 or 30 years up in Baltimore. And he wrote a memoir about being a pastor, which I, I found really good as I try to figure out how to be a pastor. And he writes about, he writes a story about his first convert that he ever made for Jesus. And this was when he was a child growing up in Montana. He loved going to school. And he loved books from a young age. And so going to school and learning, he, he just loved that. But he, hate, he hated the walk home because there was a, a bully by the name of Garrison Johns who would oftentimes find him and ridicule him, calling him a, a, a names derogatory of his religion, you know, little Jesus freak, or uh, making fun of him. And then many times beating him up. And especially when there's a lot of people around, he really liked to humi- humiliate him. And, and Eugene Peterson writes about how he, how one day after being pushed around by this guy for so many months and being bullied for so many months, something happened in him. He says, that's when it happened. Totally uncalculated, totally out of character. Something snapped within me for just a moment. The Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness <laughs> and I grabbed Garrison <laughs> To my surprise and his, I realized that I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, and pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless under me, at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fist. It felt good. And I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson on the snow. By this time, all the other children were cheering, egging me on. Black his eyes, bust his teeth. A torrent of biblical invected poured from them. (laughs) I said to Garrison, Say, uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood, more cheering. Now my audience was bringing out the best of me. (laughs) And then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, Say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. (laughs) He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. I tried again. Say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. (laughs) Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. (laughs) Garrison Johns was my introduction into the world, the world that is not my home. He was also my introduction into how effortlessly that same world could get into me, making itself perfectly at home, under cover of my Christian language and righteous emotions. We look at what Christians have done throughout history, and truth is, that junk's in all of us. 
I'd like to say, oh, the stupid German church, why did they, why did they get so deceived? But I've got to realize I can get just de- deceived just as easily as they can if I forget to live the cross of Christ, if I forget to take the words of Jesus to heart. You know, in, in, in China right now, the church is, is just growing like crazy. I mean, like crazy. It's, it's growing more in China, in a country where Christianity, it, Christians are persecuted. And it's not completely illegal. If you want to do a church in China, all you have to do is, is get the government to approve of it and, and let the government send somebody to your government-approved building and let them approve the sermons that you'll, you'll speak and, and make sure that you're not saying anything that would be in the least way subversive to the Chinese government, which rules out a lot of stuff in Christianity. <laughs> So most of the church isn't growing in the official way. You know where the church is growing? It's just growing in homes. If you want to find out, you've you got you to find someone who's a Christian and find out where there's a gathering and, and you hear it through the grapevine and, and you go over there and you worship Jesus together and, and bit by bit, kind of like Jesus said about yeast going through a loaf, bit by bit, all of China is beginning to experience the kingdom of God breaking in. Now, I've heard many Christians over the years say, we need to pray for, for, for the, the communist government to, to, to die in China, you know, to be broken down so that the, the, the Chinese Christians won't be so persecuted so they'll experience freedom. And part of me wants that. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of freedom. But part of me is scared. Because I think, what if, what if the, the head guy of China decides... To legalize Christianity. What if he decides, oh, we're going to make it the official state religion. Everybody has to be a Christian now. I almost wonder if it would be detrimental. See, Christians, when they don't have the choice for power, (laughs) the kingdom of God usually happens. You can look all over the world right now where the kingdom of God is breaking in, where the church is expanding. It's in places where Christians don't have any rights or anything. They just got God. They have it all, all the illusions stripped away. All they can do is love their enemies keep on going. I think one of our biggest things over here in America and in the Western world since, since Constantine is, is we have, have grown up thinking we have a choice and we can, we can kind of uh, have, have it both ways. We can have a little bit of the kingdom of the world, a little bit of the kingdom of God. They don't work. As I said two weeks ago, you can't serve two masters. You can't live in two kingdoms. I mean, yeah, we live in the kingdoms of this world, but we can't be faithful to Jesus and grab for power. We can't be faithful to Jesus and try to control people from the outside. We can't be faithful to Jesus and all of that for grasping for the things of the world. The kingdom of God does not come as Christians grasp for power, but rather as we replicate Calvary to the world around us. The kingdom of God does not come when we're grabbing for power. It comes as we replicate Calvary to the world around us. As we show people what sacrificial love looks like. It's not through the power brokers of human history that God will affect God's purposes, but through the little minority band of peoples committed to walking in the way of Jesus of Nazareth, bearing witness to the new reality, the new creation, the kingdom of God. I want to close this morning by looking at a, a, a little passage from Romans 
And this is where Paul seeks to, to instruct his church on how to live this, this way of Jesus out. Romans 12, verse 17, he says, Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right is in, the, in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I've said this on many occasions. If anybody had a reason to get bitter and angry at the government, <laughs> it was Paul. I mean, Paul spent most of his time writing when he was locked up in prisons. Thank God he was locked up in prisons. He had a lot of time to write. <laughs> he could have just said, we need to revolt against Rome. It's a pagan, godless empire. We need to take to the streets and protest and try to overthrow this thing. And what does he say? No. Love. Your enemies. Do not repay evil for evil. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, the truth is, when we respond to hostility by becoming hostile, we allow the evil in the heart of the enemy to define us. When evil comes at you and you respond with evil, you have all of a sudden stepped out of God's kingdom and now you're letting the evil that was done to you uh, define you. You're being defined not by God's love and His mercy and His compassion. Now you're being defined by the terms of your enemy. We are overcome by evil. But when we resist the urge to retaliate and instead respond to an enemy with love, feeding them when they're hungry and giving them something to drink when they are thirsty, we allow love to define us and open up the possibility that the enemy will be transformed into a friend. We are overcoming evil with good. Paul is very clear on this in his writings that Jesus came when we were all enemies of him. <laughs> Jesus came to, to, and died on a cross when we were all enemies. And we didn't get what was coming to us. He didn't curse us. I think the, the, the most amazing picture in the whole New Testament is Jesus hanging on the cross, beaten, bloody, bruised. And what does he say in his final words? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. The, the last few things Jesus could say, and he forgives people. Even the ones who hung him on a cross. Is that weakness? Or is that the greatest power in the universe? It's God's love that has brought us into his kingdom. And if we're going to be God's kingdom people, we've got to be people that replicate that love to the world around us. That has got to be one of our goals. That the same way Jesus laid his life down for me, that I will lay that down, my life down for my friends, my neighbors, and even my enemies. This stuff doesn't get preached much because nobody likes to hear it. I'm not a big fan either. 
I kind of wish Jesus would just say, get mad at people and curse them, cut them off your list, put them on a, you know, unfriend them. (laughs) But he doesn't. Greg Boyd, a pastor theologian, he wrote this. Through refusing to respond to enemies with force, though though refusing to respond to enemies with force may look weak to the normal way of thinking, the truth is, that the love that refuses to retaliate is the most powerful force in the universe. Laws may control behavior and violence may annihilate enemies, but only this kind of love had the power to transform the heart of an enemy. It's, only, it's the only response to evil that doesn't perpetuate evil. It's the only thing that won't keep evil going. Jesus absorbed evil into himself and he ended it. This has got to get into our lives and the way that we love our wives, our husbands, our children, the way we do business, if you, if you have employees, people that work for you, that we don't, I mean, obviously there are things you got to do when you got to manage and you got you to do things, but, but that we don't lord over people We don't lord over our kids or our wives or our spouses. That we learn to love them. We learn to love them sacrificially. We learn to replicate Calvary to each of them. Why don't you stand? Love, it will not betray you, dismay or enslave you. It will set you free. Like the man you were made to be There is a design and alignment to cry Of my heart to see The beauty of love as it was made